Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Continuing in this pre-Lenten period in the Eastern Church, this past Sunday was the Sunday regarding judgment, and the hymn appointed for the day is, when you shall come down, O Lord, in your glory, all living creatures, creatures shall tremble before you. A river of fire shall flow before your judgment seat. The book shall be open and all secrets revealed. On that day, O righteous judge, deliver me from the unquenchable fire and count me worthy to stand at your right hand. This is my prayer for you as we continue on towards the great Lenten season begging forgiveness of Christ our God, as we also beg forgiveness from one another. Please welcome back Steve Weidenkopf. Thank you for braving the sunny weather to come and, uh, and spend your time with us tonight. Last week when we were together, we looked at the baptism of Clovis, or we looked at really, before we got to the actual baptism of Clovis, which we'll get to tonight, we looked at the, setting the stage for this momentous event in the life of the church and the life of Western civilization. Um, when, when you think about it, it's interesting, you know, we're talking about the conversion of one man, right? The baptism of one man. So why is that so significant? Right? Many people were baptized at the end of the 5th century. People are baptized today. Why is it that one man's baptism is so significant? Well, that's the question we're going to answer tonight, right? So I set the stage for you last week in terms of looking at uh, what was going on in the fourth century. We need to understand that before we can move into the fifth century. So we looked at the rise of Arianism, right? We saw that heresy where you had, first of all, you had the Roman Empire convert, and then you had this rise of heresy because people were trying to answer the question, who was Jesus? And one guy tried to answer that question, this man, this North African priest by the name of Arius, and he said that Jesus was just a creature, right? The most perfect creature of God, the first creature of God, but a creature nonetheless, not somebody who is consubstantial with the Father. And so that caused problems in the church. We saw how Arianism spread in the East. Uh, there was a council that was called, the Council of Nicaea, to combat that heresy. The, the church condemned the heresy. But Arianism continued to spread because many of the bishops of the council didn't like the use of the word consubstantial, and so they began this strategy, this campaign to further Arianism and get rid of the Orthodox faith. And so we saw, too, then how Arianism spreads to the West and to, it kind of takes root in many of these ethnic German tribes that are on the kind of frontier and then inside, just the, barely inside the borders of the Roman Empire, we saw how that happened through the missionary efforts of the apostle to the Goths, this man by the name of Lufilius, and he came and spread Arianism in the West. And so we saw then how the Goths, they embraced Arianism, but then they also then spread it to these other tribes as well. And so we looked at some of these major tribes last week. We looked at the Goths, we looked at the Burgundians, we looked at the uh, Vandals, and then the Franks. And there are many other tribes too, but these were the four major tribes in Western Europe at the time. And all of those major tribes, except for one, becomes Aryan. 
One remains pagan, and that's the Franks. And that's the tribe, remember, that Clovis comes from. And so we'll talk about him in more detail in a minute. Then we saw, though, how the political system of the empire was degrading and collapsing. And so at the end of the 5th century in 476 AD, the last Roman, Western Roman emperor is overthrown. Right? Romulus Augustus, or as the soldiers called him, Romulus Augustulus, because he was a teenage boy, 15, 16 years old. And so we saw how that happened primarily because the army, Roman army, had changed substantially. Remember we talked how the, you had uh, these ethnic German tribes on the frontiers of the empire, and they wanted access to the empire. See, there's this false notion in, that, in this kind of uh, myth that's been perpetuated ever since really Gibbon um, in the 19th century, but that talks about how Western Europe and the Western Roman Empire fell was invaded by these German tribes, right? And so everyone has this image in their mind of these, these you know, hairy and bloody and, you know, Germans coming across the border and just destroying everything in their wake, right? That's the image we all have about what happens here at this time uh, in history. And that's not true at all, right? You had these ethnic tribes. They're on the front, living on the frontiers of the Roman Empire. They see inside the empire, they see the education. They see the material benefits. They see the economic prosperity of those who live inside the empire. And so they want to be inside the empire. They don't want to destroy it. That would be stupid. So they ask and they, they come into the empire finally in exchange for military service. Right? The empire lets them in and says, okay, you can come in and be a part of the empire, but we want you to serve in our army. So that by the 5th century, what you have is that the Roman army and its vital parts are comprised mostly of, mostly of ethnic Germans. And so we saw that that's what happens here with the fall of or the collapse, rather, of Rome is that you have one of these ethnic German chieftains who comes down. He wants to, to be um, recognized for his military efforts, and he deposes the last emperor. And instead of taking the title emperor, like previous um, individuals had done, he decided to just take the title king and call himself king, and the king of Italy, right, and king of the Romans. And so that ended the Western Roman Empire. So now what you have is the central governing authority in Rome collapses, and there's really only one major, at least universal institution in the West that's left, and that's the church. And so you have bishops in major cities and these major dioceses, these regional jurisdictions that go back to Diocletian. They are the ones who kind of at least have some nominal sense of authority and of government. And so all the rest of the Western Europe is comprised of these ethnic German chieftains, right, who are, were Roman auxiliary troops, but now they're the ones who really have all the political and military power. So they're trying to work out how Europe is going to look. And so we looked at Clovis, right? We looked at the king of the Franks, that large tribe of barbarians. Clovis becomes king of the Salian Franks. The Franks were, as I mentioned to you last time, they were a group of, there are many different kinds of Franks, um, but he was the king of the Salian Franks. And he becomes king at, at the young age of 15. And we saw too last time how St. Remy, Right, the Catholic bishop of the city of Reims in what is modern-day France, he writes a letter to um, Clovis when Clovis becomes king, giving him advice on how to rule. Right? Remember, if you remember what we talked about, he said, make sure you agree with the bishops. Right? Make sure you always are favorable to the church. Because right? Remy knows that he's, he's not dumb. He sees the, the political situation. He sees the religious situation. He sees all these ethnic German tribes that are now in what was the Roman Empire. And they're going to be vying for power, and they're going to vie to take over territory. And all of them are Aryan, right? except for this one. All the major ones are Aryan, except for this one that's a pagan tribe. So St. Remy is smart. He knows if this tribe can convert, 
then the church can have a chance of lasting, you know, have a long-lasting history in Western Europe. And we can get rid of this heresy of Arianism. So he writes a letter to Clovis, gives him advice, because he has this ultimate goal in mind. He wants Clovis to convert. All right, so Clovis becomes king, he receives this letter, but then he decides to, to do what St. Remy knew he was going to do. He wants to consolidate his power and increase his power throughout Europe. So he begins to, first of all, start to take on the other tribes of Franks and fight them so that he can grab their territory and bring that into his kingdom as well. He defeats, remember the, the Salian Franks are up here, they're in the, um, where's my little clicker? They're, so they're up in this area, right, what is kind of modern day Belgium. They're here and then they begin to, as you see on the map here, this conquest of Clovis, they begin to increase through what is and, and take over territory in what is now modern day France. Most of all modern day France and even parts of Germany. All right, so Clovis goes and in one big battle, the Battle of Soissons in 486, he defeats the Gallo-Roman ruler here in this part of um, modern day France and he begins to take over then that part of the rest of northern France as well. And his whole goal here is to unite these Frankish tribes under one ruler. Right? He wants to establish an empire. He wants to be considered the main Frankish ruler. And then he wants to expand beyond the area of where the Franks are. By the year 507, he's pretty much done that. He's pretty much conquered all of modern-day France, as you can see here on the map. Now, what's interesting about the Franks and when they conquered people is that the Franks were different from all the other major ethnic German tribes in this, at this time. The other tribes would come in, they'd conquer people, and they would destroy that conquered people's culture and civilization. Just get rid of it. Right? They would replace it with their own. They would take nothing from these conquered peoples. The Franks, on the other hand, completely different. The Franks decide that they're going to incorporate the culture and civilization of others. They're going to allow that culture and civilization to continue and incorporate it with their own. Right? That's highly significant because as we go through this time together tonight, we'll see how the Franks and Clovis conquers this territory of, of modern-day France and expands even beyond the, the, that border, but how he then embraces Roman civilization, embraces the civilization of the church and the culture of the church. So then the Franks are the ones who continue Western civilization. If they had been like these other tribes and then destroyed the culture they, they took over and they conquered, then Western Europe and the history of our church would be radically different. Right? I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge distinction between the Franks and these other tribes. So Clovis also had this idea that he wants to go to Paris. He wants to conquer Paris. Right? We're still here in the early part of uh, his conquest. He, goes, he wants to take over Paris because Paris is a very well-known, culturally rich, economically prosperous city. So in 492, he wants to go and take the city over with his army of Franks. But he's met by this very resilient saint in the city, a woman by the name of Saint Genevieve. And saint Genevieve is one of the most probably beautiful and just strong and active saints, women saints, female saints, in the history of the church. And not too many people know, unfortunately, about her. If you went to um, Christopher Check's talk against, with, uh, about Attila the Hun and Pope Leo the Great, I'm sure he mentioned her um, because she was the great savior of Paris when the Huns and Attila came and tried to take over the city. And she rallied the people of France and rallied the people of Paris to ensure that the city wasn't taken over by Attila. Well, at this time, when Clovis comes in 492, many years after Attila, she's an older woman, 70 years old or so, and she vowed that no pagan would ever set foot in the city of Paris as long as she lived. And she maintained that vow when Clovis's large Frankish army 
shows up at the city gates. She rallies the troops. She you know, kept morale going. It was looking very grim for the Parisian defenders. The situation got critical. Food was even getting scarce. People were beginning to starve. So what does St. Genevieve do? She actually rounds up some, some people and some men, some uh, warriors. She takes 12 ships down the Seine to a, a village just down the road, just down the, the river from Paris, grabs as much food and supplies as she can, and sells them back up the river. This dangerous kind of covert military mission in the midst of this you know, Frankish siege. I mean, that's, that's a very brave individual, first of all, but an incredibly brave woman to lead these people to do that. Ultimately, Clovis, because of that, that saved the city, that covert operation saved the city. And so the people had enough food now to, to wait out the Franks. And Clovis decided that, you know, this isn't really worth the effort. I can get Paris some other time. So he retreats. He leaves. So again, St. Genevieve saves the city of Paris twice from, from, you know, potential barbaric conquests. So a fantastic and very beautiful woman. Now, not only did she save the city of Paris, but she also did something even more important. She decided that she was going to pray for Clovis's conversion. Right, I've saved my city, but that's not enough. I need to now save this man's soul. So she prayed for his conversion. Now, there was another woman, too, who's praying for Clovis's conversion. And this is his wife, right? St. Clotilda. Clotilda is a Burgundian princess. I mentioned her to you last time we got together. And she's from the small tribe of Burgundians. Now, the Burgundians overall were Aryan, but there were a few of them that were actually Catholic, including Clotilda's mom, who was queen. And so she raised Clotilda to be Catholic. So Clotilda is now married to Clovis. So the small tribes of uh, the Burgundians now are aligned with the Franks. They marry in about the year 491, 492. Clovis was in his 20s. She was about 17 or 18 years old. And when they got married, she obviously knew he, he was pagan, but she decided she was going to pray for his conversion and also talk to him about the faith, try to reason with him about the church and defend the faith whenever, whenever he attacked it, right? She was like a very good um, Catholic wife and Catholic apologist. And so there's this saint in uh, St. Gregory of Tours book, The History of the Franks, we get this interchange, this, this uh, kind of dialogue between the two of them that Gregory records about Clotilda talking to Clovis about uh, converting. And this is what she says to him. She's kind of talking about his pagan gods. And this is what she writes, or this is what she said. The gods whom you worship are no good. They haven't even been able to help themselves, let alone others. They are carved out of stone or wood or some old piece of metal. The very names which you have given them were the names of men, not gods. You ought instead to worship him who created at a word and out of nothing, the heaven, the earth, and the sea. So do you see how this, she's, this is subtle, I mean, it's subtle but also direct, right? She's saying, okay, the gods you're worshiping, they're just man-made things, number one. So not only are they man-made, but you give them, you know, names of men. What kind of god is that? But then she does, she says, look, you know, look outside, look at what, look at the world. Look what god is, where did this come from? This had to come from someone, this creator, right? God gave us this beautiful earth, right? So Clovis turns and looks at her and says this in response. All these things, meaning creation, have been created and produced at the command of our gods. It is obvious that your god can do nothing. And what is more, there is no proof that he is god at all. So do you see how Clo there's really not a good rational argument there from Clovis, right? He basically says, okay, you, so you say your god creates the world. No, I say my god created the world. Your god doesn't do anything, and you can't even prove he exists. Have you ever run into people that talk like this? 
right, atheists or those who are really just so deep into to science that science becomes their religion. And, that, you, know, oh, well, you know, we can come up with all kinds of reasons for why everything happened, right, the scientists think. And they don't ever attribute something, or most of them don't, to you know, someone who started it all, someone who created out of nothing. Quite fascinating little interchange here. So Clotilda continues to pray for Clovis, you know, continues to defend the faith, continues to try to reason with him to grow and to hopefully one day accept the faith. But he doesn't. But he, she does get him to accept that their firstborn son should be baptized in the Catholic faith. So he agrees to that. The baptism happens. Unfortunately, a tragedy strikes and the baby dies soon after his baptism. All right, so here you go. Here are your Clotilda. You finally convince Clovis to have your baby baptized. The baby dies. What is Clovis going to do? He's going to blame you know, the Christian God, this baptism for the baby's death. And that's exactly what he does. He says this to her. He's angry at this whole situation, obviously very upset. His son had just died. If he had been dedicated in the name of my gods, he would have lived without question. But now that he has been baptized in the name of your God, he has not been able to live a single day. And so Clotilda, obviously, I mean, you think about this from Clotilda's perspective. She's obviously also distraught. Right? She just lost her son. She was happy that she had a baby. She's happy she has a son. She's an heir to the throne. She's happy that Clovis allows him to be baptized. And then he dies. Because imagine just the heartbreak in this woman, right? But this is how she responds to Clovis. It's beautiful. She says, I give thanks to Almighty God, the creator of all things, who has not found me completely unworthy, for he has deigned to welcome to his kingdom the child conceived in my womb. I am not at all cast down in my mind because of what has happened. For I know that my child, who is called away from this world in his white baptismal robes, will be nurtured in the sight of God. Think about the faith of this woman, right? To, to, to respond in that way. I mean, losing a child at, at any time, right, in a parent's life has got to be the most, you know, praise God, I've never experienced that, and, and you know, I, I don't know if anyone in the, in the room has. But if you have, that's got to be just an amazingly, horribly difficult place to be, right? Spiritually, emotionally, everything. And it takes someone of immense deep faith to have that kind of response, right? To say, I am just blessed that the Lord, you know, that I have a son in, in heaven, right? I mean, just an amazing amount of, of, of beauty and faith from this woman. You can see how it is then that Clovis will become baptized through this woman, right? If she's that strong in her faith, then how amazing, you know, and how obviously just, just you know, miraculous that the Lord will obviously would listen to her uh, and her intercession for her husband. Now, over the years, some years go by, she continues to pray, she continues to talk, she continues to, to defend the faith. She even gets Clovis to agree to go visit the shrine of St. Martin of Tours, the patron saint of France. He goes to the shrine. He even witnesses, apparently we, we read, um, we understand, miracles at the shrine of St. Tours. He sees miraculous he healings. That is still not enough to motivate Clovis. So what does motivate Clovis is, remember, Clovis is a warrior, predominantly. Right? He's, con he's trying to go around and conquer all these, these different tribes um, and, and bring them into the territory. He wants to create this big, large empire. He's a warrior. So he's off in battle against one of these tribes, a tribe known as the Alamanni. And the battle was not going well for Clovis and his Franks. And it looked as if the Alamanni were actually going to destroy the Franks. So in a moment of absolute desperation, Clovis decides, well, you know what? I mean, my strategy's not working. My troops aren't working. I pray to my gods. They're not working. I'll just pray to Clotilda's god. We'll see what happens. And so he does. This is what he says. 
Jesus Christ, you who Clotilda maintains to be the son of the living God, you who deign to give help to those in travail and victory to those who trust in faith, I beg the glory of your help. If you will give me victory over my enemies, and if I may have evidence of that miraculous power which the people dedicated to your name say that they have experienced, then I will believe in you and I will be baptized in your name. I have called upon my own gods, but as I see only too clearly, they have no intention of helping me. I therefore cannot believe that they possess any power, for they do not come to the assistance of those who trust in them. I now call upon you. I want to believe in you, but I must first be saved from my enemies. All right, so he utters this prayer in the midst of battle to Clotilda's God, and then what happens? Miraculously, the battle changes, the tide turns, the Franks win, they defeat the Alemanni, and Clovis recognizes that this is because of Clotilda's God and his intercession and his prayer. Right? And notice the key phrase. He says, or he didn't just say, you know, okay, Jesus, you know, if you're really there, you can help me. Right? He, he even, in his prayer, there's like an initial admission of faith. Right? He says, I now call upon you. I want to believe in you. Right? He, he had that intention in his heart. Where did that come from? Right? This hard, hardened warrior of battle over the, over the years, you know, that, that intention of faith, I believe, came, at least, you know, initially had it on his soul, came from his wife. Right? His wife's constant prayer, the grace from her intercession, finally kind of penetrated into his pagan heart. And he, 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 he you know, reached out in prayer to Jesus. That prayer was answered. He, became, he was victorious. And so he decides, all right, I have to follow through on my promise. I'm going to convert. He goes home. He finishes the battle, goes back to his capital, to Clotilda, tells her the whole thing, tells her what happened. You can imagine her immense joy right, at hearing this news. And so she decides to write a letter to St. Remy, the uh, Bishop of Reims, and ask him to come and begin um, Clovis's catechetical instruction. So St. Remy does. He comes, begins to instruct Clovis in the faith. It said at one point when, uh, when St. Remy was going through the crucifixion and telling um, Clovis the story of the crucifixion, Clovis got really angry, got you know, vehemently upset, and he apparently uttered this. He said, if, I had, if only I had been there with my Franks. Right? If only I had been at the crucifixion with my Franks, right? The story would have turned out differently. <laughs> so you see the enthusiasm of the, of the newly you know, convert, the neophyte. That's a good thing. Now he's concerned. One thing that Clovis is concerned about is he's okay. You know, he, I'm going to accept the faith and be baptized, but what about my warriors? Right? I'm a king. My warriors are the backbone of the empire, of my army. What happens if I convert and they don't? Are they going to accept this? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to overthrow me? Do they want to remain pagan? All these things go through his mind. How do I solve this? He talks it over with St. Remy, and they come to an understanding. And Clovis says, you know what I'm going to do? I'll call an assembly of my warriors and ask them. And just tell them, this is what I'm going to do. This is why I am doing it, and see what they say. So he does that. He calls all his warriors together. He tells them, I'm going to convert. And um, he asks them, and he tells them, this is what I'm doing, and hopefully you all can accept that. And they, 3,000 of them decide that they're going to side with their king, and they decide to accept and embrace the Catholic faith as well. So he converts his army along with himself. But see how he does it. It wasn't a forced thing where he forced his army to do it. I'm the king, you follow what I, have to, what I say. Rather, it was he asked them. Right? He called them forth and said, it's up to you. You can reject it or accept it. Up to you. They accepted. So on Christmas Day of the year 496, in the cathedral at Reims, St. Remy baptizes King Clovis and 3,000 of his warriors. 
And it said that when Remy baptized Clovis, he said this to him, Bow your head in meekness. Worship what you have burnt. Burn what you have been wont to worship. So he was baptized into the faith, his warriors along with him. There's also a kind of a legendary story that goes along with this baptism that apparently the cathedral was so packed full of people witnessing this historic and even miraculous event that the cleric who was responsible for bringing up the sacred chrism so that Clovis could be anointed couldn't get through the crowd. There was just too many people. Uh, you know, he, couldn't get the, he couldn't get the oil, I guess, from the sacristy or wherever and get it to um, the baptismal font. Too many people. So apparently the story goes that St. Remy looked up in the sky and he saw from the sky a dove descending miraculously with a vial of sacred chrism in its beak. And so he takes this, this vial from the dove and uses that to anoint Clovis. This vial is then kept and preserved in the cathedral in Reims and it's used for the next 1300 years to anoint the kings of France. All the kings of France from Clovis on will go to Reims and they'll be anointed there with this miraculous oil, the oil of St. Remy. Now during the French Revolution in the 19th century, unfortunately, that vial was destroyed, was smashed, but one pious soul gathered up the, the fragments of it, kept it hidden, and so in 1824, when the last Bourbon king of France, Charles X, was crowned, they brought the remnants out and there was just a few drops of the oil left and that was used to anoint him. Right, so this is just an amazing, um, you know, just faith and miraculous events that surround here the, the conversion of the Franks and Clovis. Now after Clovis was baptized, he then decides to take a trip with Clotilda and they go to Paris. They go to Paris, St. Genevieve heard the great news that he had been baptized and had received into the church, so she opened up the gates and allowed him to come into the city. So he comes into the city um, and, and takes it into his possession. Now, Clovis didn't, not just, not only did he convert, become Christian and become Catholic, but he also really worked to help strengthen the church in his kingdom. And he worked very closely with the church. And so we can see here with Clovis even the, kind of the beginnings of the establishment of Christendom. So what Clovis did was in the year 511, he calls the local council, the Council of French Bishops, to meet at, called the Council of Orléans. And in this council, they passed a bunch of reform decrees and a bunch of decrees that kind of strengthened the relationship between the king and the church. Now, unlike the Western or the Eastern Roman emperors who tried to control the church in the Byzantine Empire, what's known in history as Caesaropapism, where you have the emperor acting both as Caesar as well as Pope and controlling all things in the church, even appointing bishops, inserting himself into theological controversies, in the West, that doesn't develop. What develops in the West, rather, is a close unity between church and state. There's not a theocracy or a complete melding together of the two. That doesn't happen. Nor is there a complete separation between the two. But rather, there's a close cooperation between church and state because of how Clovis um, decides to work with the church and work with St. Remy. He already had a great relationship with St. Remy. He then expands his relationship with other bishops as well. What's the most interesting thing, too, about this council is that they passed a decree that Arian priests would be welcomed into the Catholic Church and they could function as Catholic priests. All right, so this, this is important because this allows then when Clovis goes and conquers these other tribes who are Arian, then the church can be established in those areas as well, in a good way in which to establish those ties. Now, unfortunately, Clovis doesn't live very long. He dies in the year five. 13 or 511, some sources say 513, at the young age of 45 years old. 
He was contracted an illness and died. We don't know exactly what. He was buried in the Abbey of St. Genevieve in Paris, and his kingdom was then divided among his four sons, which was a Frankish custom. And so here are the, there's the, the boundaries and the kingdoms that were divided between his sons. So his, his first son, a son he had from a mistress, not from Clotilde, his name is Thuderic, and Thuderic received the kingdom of Metz, right, the kingdom of Metz. And then you have Clodomir receives the kingdom of Orléans. Then his, his third son, Childebert, receives the kingdom of Paris. And then his last son, Clotar, receives the kingdom of Soissons. All right, so his kingdom is now divided among his four sons. And so what happens? What do you think happens? Now the kingdom is divided. The one king is dead. All right, just like, you know, um, the sons of, of kings throughout history and brothers in general, they decide to fight, right? They get, they get involved in, in conflict with each other. Clodomir decides to invade, invade rather, the um, kingdom of Bur uh, Burgundy without provocation, killing the Catholic king, St. Sigismund, his wife, and two young sons. Clodomar, while he's campaigning in Burgundy a year later, dies. And so his wife, his widow, marries his brother, the fourth son of Clovis, Clotar. And the three sons that he had were then sent, Clodomir's sons, were sent to Clotilda to raise. So these sons are with Clotilda, but Clotar is very jealous of these three boys. And he's concerned that these three boys over time are going to gain a following and that they might push him out of his power and his kingdom and his reign. So what he decides to do, Clotar does, is he murders two of his three nephews. And they're boys, young boys, aged 10 and 9. One boy survives. His name is Cloud. Cloud is sent to a monastery um, for safekeeping and get him out of the way so he can ever challenge Clotar for the throne. He's so pious and lives a holy life in the, mo holy life in the monastery that he actually becomes known as Saint Cloud. And so there's a city in Minnesota. Anybody from Minnesota? There's a city in Minnesota called St. Cloud, Minnesota. That's where it comes from. St. Cloud is named after the son of Clodomer, who is the son of Clovis. So the grandson of Clovis is St. Cloud. Now, St. Clotilda lives for a, a while, after, a long time actually after Clovis. She lives for 34 years in her widowhood. So here's a picture of her bemoaning and uh, um, wailing over the death of her two young grandsons. But Clotilda outlives Clovis for 34 years. She lives for a time in Paris, but then decides to move to the shrine of St. Martin of Tours, where she lives out the rest of her days pretty much in prayer, building and financing churches and monasteries as well, and then giving alms and doing charitable work. She lives the life of a saint for the rest of her life. Her feast day is June 3rd, and she died in 545, and she's the patron saint of adopted children and also the patron saint of parents of large families. So if you have many children in your family, you can pray to St. Clotilde. Unfortunately, St. Clotilde is not well known in most Catholic circles. Most people, you go to a parish and say, have you heard of St. Clotilde? Most have never heard of her, have no idea what you're talking about, unless you're in a certain area that maybe has some French influence um, in it. But most people have never heard of her, and it's, that's a shame, because she is by far one of the most, I think, important saints in the history of the church, and by far one of the most important female saints, and specifically in the church's life as well. There's a great story told of her that her sons, her two remaining sons from Clovis, Clotar and, um, and Childebert, were fighting with each other, and she was deathly afraid that they would, both of them would die and that the, you know, the sons of, of Clovis would be no more. And so she hears that they're going to have this big battle. She goes to the tomb of St. Martin, and she prays all night in front of, in to the, in front of the tomb of St. Martin that this battle would somehow be averted. 
The armies are gathering together. It's about ready. The battle's about ready to start. As it's about to start, this huge thunderstorm, this frightening thunderstorm comes out of nowhere, miraculously. So it's such a horrific storm that the armies scatter and they flee and retreat. And so the battle never actually takes place. So she, you know, even continued to pray for her, her uh, children so that uh, they would be at peace with one another. Now, Clovis's conversion is, ha- is extremely important. Here's Clotilda praying for her, uh, her children. It's extremely important. He becomes the Catholic king, the major Catholic king in Western Europe. His, the faith now is legitimized in the eyes of the Franks, right? He converts, his warriors convert. Now the rest of his people begin to convert as well. So what was before a very difficult missionary activity now is easy, right? Because the king has converted, now other people in his realm are converting as well. And what's interesting too is that because the king and his warriors converted, the faith was not seen as something weak by these other Germanic tribes. Right? Oh, if the king and the warrior becomes a Catholic, then this is not just the faith of a weak and conquered people. This is the faith of a strong and and vital and vigorous uh, military warrior. So over time, as Clovis then through his life and then his sons, they expand his empire, they begin to convert the other tribes who had embraced Arianism. So this would take some time, but ultimately those Arian tribes become Catholic because of the Franks and because of Clovis's um, conversion. So he really, Clovis did, solidified Europe as a Catholic country, a Catholic area rather, at the very beginning of its, its uh, history after the collapse of the Roman Empire. This is why France is considered in history as called and has the title eldest daughter of the church. So, so much so that, that even um, Charles de Gaulle, right, a great French general and president, wrote this about the importance of Clovis in French history. He says, for me, the history of France begins with Clovis. Before Clovis, we have Gallo-Roman and Gaulish prehistory. The decisive element for me is that Clovis was the first king to have been baptized a Christian. My country is a Christian country, and I reckon the history of France beginning with the accession of the Christian king who bore the name of the Franks. Now, not only was Clovis's conversion important, and not only did it for the history of Europe and the church at the time, not only did it have near-term importance, but it also has long-term importance. Go with me for a minute here, 200 years, almost 220 years into the future. Here's the baptism of Clovis. Go 220 years into the future when the Merovingian dynasty that Clovis founded is still in existence in what is modern-day France. And you have here in the year 732, 100 years after the death of Mohammed, you have a 20,000-man Muslim invasion force who has left the Iberian Peninsula, what is modern-day Spain, crossed the Pyrenees, gone into France with an objective of firstly capturing and sacking the shrine of St. Martin of Tours, and then laying the groundwork for a larger invasion force to come and take over all of what is, again, modern-day France. They are met in battle. They get to the town of Poitiers, which is 120 miles southwest of Paris. They get to, the battle of, or they get to Poitiers, and they are met by a Frankish force, a Frankish army, under the command of Charles Martel and they are defeated decisively at this Battle of Poitiers. Now, if Charles Martel and the Frankish army had not defeated this Islamic invasion force, the whole history of France would be different. The whole history of Western civilization would be different. The whole history of our church would be considerably different. The Muslims, there were so many Muslim casualties in this battle that the Muslims actually refer to this battle not as the Battle of Poitiers, but as the Road of Martyrs. 
So many were killed in the battle and on the retreat back to Spain. They refer to it as the Road of Martyrs. Now, after the Charles defeats the Muslims, things change in the Kingdom of Franks when his son, a man by the name of Pepin the Short, decides to end the Merovingian dynasty that was founded by Clovis and decides to make himself king. And how he does this is he held the title of mayor of the palace. And what that meant was, was basically he was commander-in-chief of the armed forces in the Frankish kingdom, as well as prime minister of government. But, so he's doing all this, but you have this kind of puppet king, this Merovingian king who's very weak, um, who is just enjoying the benefits of royalty without any of the work, so to speak. And so Pepin gets upset with that. He decides to write a letter to the pope, to Pope Zachary. He writes a letter to him and says, hey, who should be king? He who actually rules and governs and executes orders, or he who just is descended from somebody and who has a title king. And the pope writes him back and says, well, he who has the actual authority, he who exercises the authority should be king. So Pepin uses this letter as an excuse to overthrow the Merovingians and does and establishes himself as king. Now because of that, that forms a very close bond between the papacy and now the king of the Franks, a different dynasty, but still the Frankish kingdom. And so, so much so that the next pope, Pope Stephen III, is under attack by the Lombards. The Lombards are another of these ethnic German groups, and they're attacking uh, most of uh, what is northern Italy, Lombardy. They attack, and they begin to encroach down onto papal territory and onto the pope, and the pope is worried they're going to conquer Rome and, and get rid of him. So he writes a letter to, pope, or to uh, Pepin and asks Pepin to come and help and defend the papacy. He writes this to Pepin. This is Pope Stephen III. He says, I, Peter, God's apostle, who have you as my adopted sons, exhort you to defend from the hands of our adversaries the city of Rome and the people committed by, me, or committed by God to me and to snatch the house in which I rest away from the contamination of the barbarians. So Pepin marches his Frankish army down to northern Italy. They fight the Lombards. They win a series of battles. They enter into a peace treaty with the Lombards. And the territory that they had captured from the Lombards, they then give to the Pope. This is known as the Donation of Pepin, and so at that point the Pope becomes a temporal ruler. He actually holds land, becomes a temporal ruler, a secular ruler of that land, and this comes to be known in history then as the Papal States, which the Pope will have in his possession until the 19th century, the late 19th century in 1870 when the Kingdom of Italy will take that land away from him, and now he just resides in the Vatican City-State. Right, so the, the Franks and their importance not only with the Church but in Western civilization and the papacy is solidified here with Clovis's baptism and then continues on through their history. One more point just to, to make here as we close is the importance of the Franks. One biographer of Clovis said this, Upon the ruins of the Roman Empire, Clovis built up a powerful system, the influence of which dominated European civilization during many centuries, and from which sprang, sprang France, Germany, Belgium, Holland, and Switzerland, without taking into account that northern Spain and northern Italy were also for a time, under the civilizing regime of the Franks. Now, the civilizing regime of the Franks gains even more importance when you fast forward in time to the 8th century, 9th century, when you have the reign of Charlemagne. And Charlemagne is obviously, as most of us know, he's crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. He reestablishes the Roman Empire in the West. And not only does he do that politically, but even more important culturally, what he does is he institutes something called the Carolingian Renaissance. And the Carolingian Renaissance under his reign was a revival of art, architecture, and education. And what Charlemagne wanted to do in his empire is to have a standardized curriculum so that all boys and girls throughout his empire who went to school 
would receive the same kind of teachings, the same subjects would be taught to them. And to do that, to, bring, to create that standardized curriculum, he brings from England uh, this individual, Alcuin, Alcuin of York, who creates these two different groupings of subjects that he called the trivium and the quadrivium. And the trivium were the subjects of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. The quadrivium were the subjects of arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. So every child who went to school in the Frankish kingdom would receive lessons in these areas. And these two groupings, the trivium and the quadrivium, form the core of the liberal arts education even in our universities today. Right, so modern Western education, or at least the bedrock of it, um, in those universities and schools who still teach it like Christendom, you know, they form that bedrock, that foundation comes from the Franks. It comes from Charlemagne, it comes from Clovis and his baptism. Not only did he establish this curriculum, but he also, Charlemagne, fostered and supported the building of monasteries, Benedictine monasteries, and also the building of, in those monasteries of Scriptoria where you had Benedictine monks writing and copying down ancient manuscripts, Bibles, and also the classical works of Greece and Rome. There's over 7,000 manuscripts that we have from that time period of Charlemagne and his Benedictine monks. Most of, the, most of what we know from ancient Greece, Greek and Roman literature come from manuscripts written or copied during that time. So huge, huge, I mean, these, these are, the French basically brought us and saved Western civilization in essence, right, is what I'm arguing. One also thing they did I think is just really kind of interesting and neat is that the Benedictine monks during the Charlemagne's time came up with this thing called Carolingian minuscule, which was a way of writing, a way of copying manuscripts and writing, which was different from previous things. It was a standardized script that was then present throughout and standardized throughout his empire. It was used from the year eight, from 800, from the 9th century all the way to the 13th century. And what they did was they divided, or they made up a script that was clear, easy to read, spaces between words, clear and big capital letters, and even um, punctuation marks and grammar marks. Before this time, if you read an ancient manuscript, it's just one long series of words back and forth, back and forth. And it's very difficult to decipher. You have to really know your words and the language to be able to know where the break is. Right? And the monks decided that was too hard, so let's just put a space between each word. Right? Something you and I take for granted every day. Right? Where did that come from? It comes from here, from the Franks, from Charlemagne and his, his desire to continue and to further um, Western classical education and civilization. I want to end here with John Paul, St. John Paul II. Always a good place to end. St. John Paul II went to France in the year 1996 to celebrate and to acknowledge the 1500th anniversary of the baptism of Clovis. Pretty significant, right? The Pope is going to travel to a country in order to recognize this anniversary. And so he goes, he goes to the Cathedral of Reims, and he's looking back a month or so after he gets back to Rome from the visit, and he writes and talks in this general audience, rather, about what that meant, and what, what, the, how the, what the importance of Clovis's baptism was. And he said this, Clovis's baptism gave rise to a deep faith life, which was expressed in abundant fruits of holiness down through the centuries. And then he wrote this, The anniversary of the baptism of Clovis invites each of us to meditate deeply upon the meaning of our own baptism. The gospel calls every baptized person to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Baptism, in addition, is a call to renew one's own spiritual life and to assume one's proper responsibilities for achieving unity and interior growth of Christ's mystical body. Baptismal grace motivates believers to face the challenges of the contemporary world in light of the gospel. 
So why are we studying the history of Clovis's baptism? Because as the Holy Father said to us, we meditate deeply upon the meaning of our own baptism. All right, Clovis, obviously, his baptism is significantly important. He is a king of the Franks. Right? His baptism shapes Western European civilization and culture and history, shapes the history of the church, a significant event in the life of the world, right? in the life of our church. But our baptisms, I would argue, are also as significant. Right? We are all baptized. We are all given a mission by Christ. Right? We all have a purpose in this world to further the faith and to spread it, just as Clovis did. So don't think that by studying the history of the Franks or the history of Clovis's baptism that it's some kind of event in the past that has no bearing or no meaning, no meaning in our own life. It has of, it's of utmost importance to our own life. Because although we might not be kings, we might not be presidents, we might not be rulers, but our baptism and our faith has a very special and unique and important role to play in the lives of everyone that God brings into our, into our life, our family, our friends, our coworkers. That's why we study the baptism of Clovis. That's why we come to the Institute of Catholic Culture to grow in our faith and to give the saving message of Jesus to a world, a modern world, that's in desperate need of it. Thank you very much. Why do we know so well Clovis' prayer? I mean, how was it recorded? So Clovis's prayer to, to Jesus, that, what I read you, came from St. Gregory of Tours' book, The History of the Franks. So St. Gregory of Tours wrote after Clovis's life, but he records the, the history of the kingdom. So we understand that you know, he could have gotten that from those who knew Clovis, those who had talked with him, that had you know, passed that prayer down, passed the story down, and then he just recorded it and wrote it down himself in the sixth century. So that's where we have that from. I was struck by the devotion to St. Martin de Tours that you mentioned from Queen Clotilda. And then later you said that the, the Moors speci specifically wanted to target this shrine of Martin de Tours. Well, I've never really heard of this shrine. Was it destroyed in the French Revolution or is there something there? No, the shrine, is, I mean, the shrine of St. Martin de Tours is it's still there. It's still in France, yeah. And it's, it was a major, it was, during the Middle, medieval period, it was one of the major uh, pilgrimage stops in Europe. So people would go to Rome. If you, know, if you could afford to, you would go to Jerusalem. And if you wanted to risk your life, um, depending on what time you went, um, you go to Jerusalem, you go to Rome, you go to Santiago de Compostela in Spain, but also the shrine of St. Martin of Tours. Yeah, so St. Martin you know, was a, a Roman soldier, converted, right, you know, the story of St. Martin. And so you know, he was, became the bishop of Tours, took the faith out into the countryside, very much well-beloved saint of, of France. So, yeah, the Moors targeted that, that shrine primarily because of its wealth, and they knew it was a big shrine, and they knew there were a lot of objects there and sacred precious metals and, and sacred uh, vessels. So that was a perfect opportunity for them to go and, and sack it. Yeah. So I always thought of St. Boniface as being the primary apostle to the Germans. And so I'm wondering, to what extent was there solidarity and, uh, and uh, discourse between the Germanic tribes? Sure. So, yeah, St. Boniface is the apostle to the Germans. And he goes and he, he actually spends a lot of time in what is obviously modern-day Germany, but he also spends time in France and working with the Frankish kingdom, working um, with, the, uh, with Pepin and with others to, to kind of solidify the church and strengthen the church in France. So. Um, or what becomes modern-day France. So was there, how much of there was there, um, 
you know, harmony and peace among the various Germanic tribes? I mean, not usually. The, it depended on the tribe. Charlemagne, for example, who was, you know, king of the Franks, thought, fought a 30-year war against the Saxons to try to bring them into the faith. Um, they were a, a smaller tribe that was pagan, but they were fiercely pagan. They were cannibals, participated in human sacrifice, uh, and so he, he had to bring the sword in order to bring the faith to the Saxons. So, you know, when we talk of Germany, there's no, you know, there's no, when we use that term all the way in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, all the way up, there's no Germany as, it, as we know it today until the late 19th century. That's when Germany unifies as a country. But, so there's a whole collection of princes, principalities and dukedoms and other various areas that comprise what is modern-day Germany. Sometimes they got along well, sometimes they didn't. It really kind of depends on, on who was the Holy Roman Emperor and who was the stronger tribe. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.